surprise. It's an impromptu Saturday generational change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter. And we have had quite the productive day. We have saying? had a very productive day and we have a lot of things to talk about. Hey, Seuss, welcome. Good to Hi, see all. You. Make sure you're smashing that like button, getting this out there to We, I've been people. in a schwitz. We, <laughs> been in a schwitz been for in six a schwitz. hours. We were out canvassing today. So, um, and then just decided to come do this. So we don't exactly, I'm not my, uh, usual more well-chem self. We're going to test I out a couple. I like that. You don't like no, it? No, it's too big. It's touching your head. No, I don't like that. Well, we don't want it touching the hair. <laughs> Not with all the effort you because put into that. Because that's really, well, my hair's a little stylish today. My hair's generally stylish, but I decided to comb it in the other direction. What do you think? I find it a little unnerving, actually. Yeah. I'm not used to that. I was going to say it's the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. It's You're going to kill somebody. It's the oh, how the hell would he know where we're going? So we have some interesting things to talk about. That one doesn't work. That right? one definitely doesn't Peter's work. Peter's obsessively playing with streaming. That one's of. good. I like that. So Is that okay? Go with that we one? Got, I, I got a mail. The political mailers are coming in every day now. Like I get so many every day. And- I got this one from DeSantis. This is my. This is the first family of Florida right here. Right? As of right now. As yeah. of right now, this is the first family of Florida. I just don't see anybody competing with that. Not I right just now. really don't see anybody competing with that. No, and after the video that I saw today, apparently one of, uh, one of the uh, county commissioners in Palm Beach County, which is supposed to be a democratic strong. Well, it's not even a stronghold really anymore. It's just a, it's mildly it's blue. Left. I wouldn't well, no, I mean, probably like 10 points, but you know, blue nonetheless. I mean, a stronghold would be Broward and it used to be Dave. The problem is, is that a lot of things are changing. And in this case, when you have a democratic county commissioner coming out saying I'm supporting governor DeSantis, not even bashing Charlie Crist. I mean, this could, and then you could easily just say, oh, that person's just a dino. He's a Democrat name only. No, No. it's like, I have nothing bad to say about Charlie. I'm just here to say that I think governor DeSantis is doing a good job and I'm supporting him. And that's like, there are, there are many Democrats that will support Ron DeSantis over Charlie Crist. I mean, I understand that you buy, Jen, we went, so where did we go today? We went to the Indie Craft Show and Bazaar at Revolution Live. And now why are you convinced that I won't like this? It's very sweet. Take a bite. Mm, It's interesting. It's caramel and shortbread. It's really good. There's little Peruvian cookies. I mean, I would hate myself for not actually having one. It's so, they're so yummy. They're little, they're little shortbread cookies with caramel sandwiched in them. They're quite tasty. Um, so I bought myself a really nice um, candle. And I'm not going to say that I have a, an affinity for candles in general. Just But you do. They, have, they smell good. They're <laughs> really good. And in this case, the one that I got was a combination of pumpkin and caramel. I think it smelled like coffee. It had a little bit of a coffee scent to it, for sure. But it smelled like the fall. It did and smell being, fall. And being from New Jersey, I have a lot of passion for that whole fall season smell. We don't get it here. No, definitely. There's well, not, not a whole lot of fall. Uh-uh. But the weather's becoming a little bit more tolerable for canvassing, yes. which we just did. So some things have been happening, people, that we need to talk about. And this is something that, I mean, we've been talking about for a while. And some of you may know that I'm planning a day, a three-hour panel series called Deconstructing Zionism, 
where we're going to have four different panels. We're going to talk about the different issues, history of Zionism. We're going to do some one-on-one stuff so that we can all be looking at this from the same set of facts. I think that's two weeks from today. We'll be doing it. We have some really great guests confirmed already for that. Mm -hmm. Um, Are we allowed to share some of those? We can share some of those guests. So I just don't know that most people would know that people, I mean, well, for we are, the fourth and the last panel is going to be the intersection between the Black Liberation Movement and the pro-Palestinian movement or Palestinian rights movement. And right now, confirmed on that, we have Phil Agnew from Dream Defenders and Margaret Kimberly, friend, author, historian, two amazing people. Um, so that's just one panel, and there's still more invites out. So um, it's coming together really nicely. But in the meantime, one of the people that is going to be participating, well, hopefully, but um, that I've reached out to is friend Katie Halper. And this is something that I've been planning for a while. However, um, the other day, Katie was fired from her job at um, Rising at the Hill uh, for a monologue that she did in support of Rashida Tlaib's comment that claiming that progressives cannot say you cannot be progressive and support the Israeli apartheid state. And of course, everybody who, you know, loves to, has no concept of nuance and loves to just throw down about that, like our Congresswoman, come out and just say she's an anti-Semite, Rashida Tlaib's an anti-Semite. Who's our Congresswoman? Debbie Wasserman Schultz. So um, Katie, then being a smart journalist person, went and did a whole bunch of research and put together a really good monologue explaining how, yes, in fact, Israel is an apartheid state by definition of basically every single organization in the world believes it to be so. In fact, and if you watch, we I don't know, can we play Katie's monologue? Or uh, should I just direct people to Katie's monologue? Because guys, she did some serious digging and there are many people from the Israeli government, former prime ministers, former people in the cabinet positions there that have referred to Israel as an apartheid state. So this is not just, you know, angry progressives or anti-Semites. This is a fact that when you have an ethnocracy, that there's going to be one group of people with different rights than another group of people, hence apartheid. It's textbook definition apartheid. And they might not like that, but as Katie suggested, what maybe they should do is spend their time really learning about the issue to maybe figure out solutions that might help it, as opposed to just denying that it exists. So this is this is a problem, guys. So I don't know. I mean, like, if you want, we can play. Yeah. So, guys, we're going to go ahead and play the monologue. This is the reason this is the monologue. Katie will introduce it. But this is the monologue that got her fired from rising and they wouldn't let her put this up. And it was supposed to be. She was supposed to have like a very non-censored experience there. And yet this is what happened. So, uh, and, well, you have to know where the line gets drawn. <laughs> and yes. And the line gets drawn. That is Palestine. Right. It's Palestine. except for which Palestine, which is that's the name of Mark Lamont Hill's book. It's called Except for Palestine. And it's about how people are progressive except for Palestine. And that's the truth, because if this were happening any other place, most of these people would never tolerate it. So are we? Yeah. Yeah, it's happening. All right. So take us. It's something that I wrote, delivered and recorded at the Hill. It was then censored and I was then canceled and fired. Representative Rashida Tlaib has been condemned by some over comments she made about Israel. Here's CNN's Jake Tapper reporting on what the Michigan Democrats said and the response it prompted. 
Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib of Michigan facing criticism today from what several of her Jewish colleagues have deemed anti-Semitic comments. Here's what Tlaib, the first Palestinian-American woman to serve in Congress, said at a virtual event yesterday. I want you all to know that among progressives, it has become clear that you cannot claim to hold progressive values, yet back Israel's apartheid government. And we will continue to push back and not accept this idea that you are progressive, progressive except for Palestine any longer. The CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, slammed the comments saying that Israel does not have an apartheid government and said that she should not be imposing a, quote, litmus test in a tweet saying, quote, Tlaib tells American Jews that they need to pass an anti-Zionist litmus test to participate in progressive space. Some of Tlaib's Jewish colleagues in Congress agreed. Florida Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz called her comments, quote, outrageous and, quote, nothing short of anti-Semitic. Debbie Wasserman Schultz is right. It is outrageous. It's outrageous that Rashida Tlaib is getting attacked. Tlaib is merely stating that Israel is an apartheid state and that people who claim to have progressive values cannot support an apartheid state. No matter how loose a definition of progressive we use, it certainly excludes supporting a racist apartheid system. What's outrageous is attacking Tlaib for pointing out that progressive except for Palestine is an intrinsically contradictory position. What's also outrageous is that the Anti-Defamation League's Jonathan Greenblatt would claim that Israel is not an apartheid government. What's outrageous is that Jake Tapper would accept Greenblatt's judgment as the truth and not propaganda that needed to be pushed back against. I understand that Greenblatt and perhaps Tapper feel like Israel is not an apartheid state, but unfortunately for them, apartheid isn't about your feelings. It's about facts. In 1973, the UN defined the crime of apartheid as any inhuman acts committed for the purpose of establishing and maintaining domination by one racial group of persons over any other racial group of persons and systematically oppressing them. In 1998, the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court defined apartheid as inhumane acts of a character that are committed in the context of an institutionalized regime of systematic oppression and domination by one racial group over any other racial group or groups and committed with the intention of maintaining that regime. These inhuman acts include, among others, infliction upon the members of a racial group or groups of serious bodily or mental harm by the infringement of their freedom or dignity or by subjecting them to torture or to cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment by arbitrary arrest and illegal imprisonment of the members of a racial group or groups, any legislative measures and other measures calculated to prevent a racial group or groups from participation in the political, social, economic, and cultural life of the country and the deliberate creation of conditions preventing the full development of such a group or groups. In particular, by denying to members of a racial group or groups basic human rights and freedoms, including the right to leave and to return to their country, the right to a nationality, the right to freedom of movement and residence, the right to freedom of opinion and expression, and the right to freedom of peaceful assembly and association. I'd encourage Jake Tapper to look this up sometime. Here are just a few examples of Israel's apartheid policies. The law of return of 1950 allows any Jew, which means anyone with one Jewish grandparent, the right to return to Israel, the right to move to Israel and automatically become citizens of Israel. It gives their spouses that right too, even if they're not Jewish, though if they're Palestinian, that's another issue entirely. Palestinians, of course, lack that right. 
The Israeli citizenship law of 1952 deprived Palestinian refugees and their descendants of legal status, the right to return, and all other rights in their homeland. It also defined Palestinians present in Israel as Israeli citizens without a nationality and group rights. These laws together obviously fit into the International Criminal Court's apartheid criteria. More recently, the nation-state law established that the fulfillment of the right of national self-determination in the state of Israel is unique to the Jewish people. It demoted Arabic from an official language to a language with special status. It also stipulated the state views Jewish settlement as a national value and will labor to encourage and promote its establishment and development. These are just some of the reasons that human rights organizations have declared Israel an apartheid state. Al-Haq, Al-Mezin Center for Human Rights, Adala, the Legal Center for Arab Minority Rights in Israel, Adamir, Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association, Human Rights Watch, and Amnesty International have all documented Israeli apartheid policies. Israel's own human rights organization, B'Tselem, has declared the Israeli regime enacts an apartheid regime. B'Tselem divides the way Israeli apartheid works into four areas. Land. Israel works to Judaize the entire area, treating land as a resource chiefly meant to benefit the Jewish population. Since 1948, Israel has taken over 90% of the land within the Green Line and built hundreds of communities for the Jewish population. Citizenship. Jews living anywhere in the world, their children and grandchildren and their spouses are entitled to Israeli citizenship. In contrast, Palestinians cannot immigrate to Israeli-controlled areas even if they, their parents, or their grandparents were born and lived there. Israel makes it difficult for Palestinians who live in one of the units it controls to obtain status in another and has enacted legislation that prohibits granting Palestinians who marry Israelis status within the Green Line. Freedom of movement. Israeli citizens enjoy freedom of movement in the entire area controlled by Israel and may enter and leave the country freely. Palestinian subjects, on the other hand, require a special Israeli-issued permit to travel between the units and sometimes inside them, and exit abroad also requires Israeli approval. Political participation. Palestinian citizens of Israel may vote and run for office, but leading politicians consistently undermine the legitimacy of Palestinian political representatives. The roughly 5 million Palestinians who live in the occupied territories, including East Jerusalem, cannot participate in the political system that governs their lives and determines their future. I was born in New York City. My great-grandparents and the family before them were from Eastern Europe. I could move to Israel today, buy a house, get a job, travel around with no problem. So could Jake Tapper and Jonathan Greenblatt. But a Palestinian like Rashida Tlaib can't even visit her family home in what is now Israel. This demographic tension is recognized by Israeli officials and politicians who have described their own country as an apartheid state. Former Attorney General Michael Ben-Yair wrote in 2002, we established an apartheid regime in the occupied territories immediately following their capture. That oppressive regime exists to this day. Zahava Galon, former chair of Israel's Meretz party said in 2006, Israel was relegated to the level of an apartheid state. In 2007, Israel's former education minister, Shulamit Aloni, wrote, The state of Israel practices its own quite violent form of apartheid with the native Palestinian population. In 2008, former environment minister Yossi Sarid said, What acts like apartheid is run like apartheid and harasses like apartheid is not a duck, it is apartheid. In 2015, former Mossad chief Meir Dagan said, President Benjamin Netanyahu's policies are leading to either a binational state or an apartheid state. Even Israel's prime ministers have used the A-word. 
In a recently published 1976 interview, assassinated Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin said, if we don't want to get to apartheid, I don't think it's possible to contain over the long term a million and a half more Arabs inside a Jewish state. In 2007, yet another prime minister, Ehud Olmert, warns, if the day comes when the two-state solution collapses and we face a South African-style struggle for equal voting rights, then as soon as that happens, the state of Israel is finished. Prime Minister Ehud Barak said in 2010, as long as in this territory west of the Jordan River, there's only one political entity called Israel, it is going to be either non-Jewish or non-democratic. If this block of millions of Palestinians cannot vote, that will be an apartheid state. But there is no other standard more universally respected in defining apartheid, not the UN, not the international criminal courts, not human rights organizations, not Israeli prime ministers, than the people of South Africa who lived under the system of apartheid. After all, apartheid is an Afrikaans word. It means apartness. It was the official policy in South Africa from 1948 to 1994, allowing white South Africans in the minority to rule over and discriminate against the vast majority of black South Africans. The definitions from the United Nations and the International Criminal Court come out of their experiences. In 1997, Nelson Mandela said, the UN took a strong stand against apartheid and over the years an international consensus was built, which helped to bring an end to this iniquitous system. But we know too well that our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinians. In 2013, Desmond Tutu recalled being struck by the similarities between what he experienced in apartheid South Africa and what he observed in Israel. I have visited the occupied Palestinian territories and have witnessed the humiliation of Palestinians at Israeli military checkpoints. The inhumanity that won't let ambulances reach the injured Farmers tend their land or children attend school. This treatment is familiar to me and the many black South Africans who were corralled and harassed by the security forces of the apartheid government. Listen to South Africa's Minister for International Relations, Naledi Pandor, addressing the United States General Assembly just last week. While we work to address contemporary conflicts, we should not ignore long-standing conflicts, such as that of the people of Palestine, which has been on the United Nations agenda throughout the seven decades of existence of this organization. We cannot ignore the words of the former Israeli negotiator at the Oslo talks, Daniel Levy, who addressed the UN Security Council recently and referred to the increasingly weighty body of scholarly, legal, and public opinion that has designated Israel to be perpetrating apartheid in the territories under its control. To my fellow Jews, to my friends in the Democratic Party who want to support Israel and think of themselves as progressive, it's important to look at what Israeli law today does, what the lived experiences of Palestinians today means as defined under international law and what our friends from South Africa have long pointed out. But we should not stop there. South Africans didn't just define apartheid, they dismantled it. Instead of attacking Rashida Tlaib for her candor, her critics should ask themselves how Israeli apartheid could be dismantled. What would a post-apartheid country look like?
לשען הטובה. And that is from Katie Halper. And as you guys can see, she did her homework. She really did her homework. And I, this is getting harder and harder for people to deny as facts. It really is. And the more people want to just bury their heads in the sand is not making it go away. And in fact, I do think it's creating and leading to anti, actual anti-Semitism. Because when people feel that their freedom of speech is being violated, which is basically what's happening in this country about the Israel and Palestine issue, 26 states in this country have anti-BDS legislation on their books, which means that the states are allowed to require people that contract with the state that they are not allowed to be participants in boycott, divest, and sanction. And that is a complete violation of our First Amendment rights. And that is something that's been happening. It is in 26 states have that right now. It actually might be more by now. And it's one of those things that's just being, being passed. And the fact that Katie was fired for wanting to put out truth should be very alarming to people. You know, now Katie in particular is going to be fine. She has her own podcast. She has a couple of podcasts. It wasn't like, you know, that was her main job. But it's very stifling. And I think that when people feel stifled, that that actually will lead eventually to legitimate anti-Semitism. Thoughts? Where do you, where do you see it uh, from the perspective of our Congresswoman Wasserman Schultz, who is not only somebody who is at the forefront of this issue, for whatever reason, this is, this is the hill she will die on as This a is the hill I'm feeling like that myself, Debbie. Uh, and so at the same time, Debbie is also one of the, again, She's one of the most inept, inadequate congressional representatives we have in the United States. Yeah. And yet, when it comes to this particular issue, De when, especially when it comes to anti-BDS legislation, Debbie's at the forefront of it. Yeah, like for she's sure. As, for, she's high up on the hog. She is right there neck and neck with the most lunatic GOPers that you can possibly yeah. get, even worse than Jerry Nadler, who represents Borough Park and some of the most... Um, you know, Hasidic Jewish communities in the entire country. Which tend so, to be GOP, for sure. Certainly. But then again, Jerry's a Democrat. But my point is... So is Debbie. Yeah. So again, I guess the question becomes, you know, what is the... What is Debbie's motivation from your perspective? I think... Well, I think it's two things. One, I do think she was probably legitimately brainwashed and programmed by Zionist people, as was I. She's only five years older than me, so she's coming from being raised by the same generation that we weren't taught proper history. We weren't taught proper history. But at this point in her life, she's old enough where she has to claim responsibility for ignorance, especially when you're in a position that you have access to said information. So the information is there. So then the question becomes, does she purposefully ignore it, which I do think is very traditional older Jews tend to do because to really think about it, it really dismantles everything. Like, I don't think people understand like how, just how pro-Israel we're raised and especially um, American Jews and, and what we're taught. And it's like, it really dismantles your entire worldview to find out that no, they're not the good guys. And yes, Israel is an apartheid state. And if Debbie doesn't like that, then she should maybe do something about it. But you know, you're right. That might be the hill she dies on. This might be the hill I die on. I am done being quiet about this. I'm done walking on eggshells about this. I'm done pretending that there can be a two-state solution. I'm just not doing it anymore. That's not real. 
What's real is that we're having an apartheid state and we've been having kind of consistent genocide. And by genocide, it can be killing a culture. It doesn't have to be killing individuals. It can be destroying a culture. And that's what we're doing here. And if people want to know the facts and then still think that Israel's entitled to just be an ethnocracy and they know the facts and 750,000 Palestinians were killed, displaced, moved, um, and you still believe that, then fine, but own that it's an ethnocracy and it is not a democracy. I am tired of people saying that Israel is a democracy. No, it's not. You can't have it both ways. You can't have an ethnocracy or basically a theocracy for all those people probably criticizing Iran as being a theocracy. And yet that's basically what you want. If you want to have an ethno state, you need to conduct an ethno cleanse. That's how it works. So if you want to say, I support Israel, Israel should exist. It should be a Jewish state. That's fine. But own that what you're talking about is an ethnocracy and by definition is not a democracy. And that's all I'm saying. Own your shit. It's also hard to get people to think outside of the, I guess, the historic connotation. We weren't taught. Where, yeah, but you're taught that you're the chosen people. It's that, but we were taught that Israel was a land with no people for a people with no land. That was the exact phrase. That's what my parents were taught. They weren't taught about the Nakba. They weren't taught that Palestinians were killed or kicked off their lands. And they weren't taught that. They didn't know that. And all they knew was that they were escaping the Holocaust and they needed a place that was safe to go. And they were lied to by Zionist propagandists that had been wanting and waiting for an opportunity, just like post-Holocaust, to be able to really sell their agenda. And that is what happened. And my, my relatives, my ancestors, they all fell for it because they were scared and they didn't know better. And also they didn't have access to information like we do now. It wasn't like they could, you know, just look it up and, and Google it and find some reporter that's covered this. That's not how this works. Yeah, but I also am not convinced that if Debbie were to be confronted with this information, that her opinion would change. No, it wouldn't because now it's political for her. But was it always? I don't think so. I think she was probably equally as brainwashed as I was. And she's chosen to stay in that camp because it's politically better for her to do so. But and, is it really better politically? Well, we're going to find out, people, because I think that the tide is turning. The question is, is, is the balance going to turn in which election? And it isn't just on this issue. It's a lot of issues. But you've got the older people. It's a generational shift. It's a generational change. But the, the thing is with her, it's she really is representative in that way of a lot of people. And that is why we are going to be hosting two weeks from today, October 15th, from two to five. Four panels, three hours, called Deconstructing Zionism. And the panels are going to be really packed with amazingly intelligent people that understand this issue very well. And this is not, a ma this isn't partisan. And it really shouldn't be political. What we're talking about is justice. It's about justice. And right now, they're not living in a just way. And that, that's something we need to work on. So two weeks from today, Deconstructing Zionism. Um, yeah, we have some great guests scheduled, guys. I'm very excited about it. And I love yeah. when we do a marathon like that. Um, I'm, I'm really hoping, like there's certain people that I'm hoping we can get that we don't have. So I'm not going to like say for sure that we do. But we do also have amazingly good people that are scheduled to come on. And I'm very happy about that. Certainly hopeful that that is going to be the case. Rabbi Brant Rosen, who is with, um, it's called... Sadaka Synagogue Chicago. And he is one of the rabbis that um, a reformist rabbi, 
um, not reform. I want to say, is it, does he go by reconstructionist? I'm not entirely sure, but he is on the forefront of pro-Palestinian movement amongst rabbinical students and rabbis. And that's very important because this needs to be taught by the people who we were all deprogrammed. It makes it easier for us to bring other people over to understanding. It really does. I get where people come from. I've been to Israel. I went there for high school in Israel. I always thought I would send my kids on birthright like this. We, I was raised about Israel. So I very much understand. And it's been very, very difficult and very hard for me to accept a lot of the bad stuff. It really has because I loved it there and I wanted to make Aliyah and I was going to move there. And that's what it's called. When you make Aliyahs, you get Israeli citizenship. It's available to any Jew anywhere in the world at any time. And their family can all just go there and get citizenship. And that's a problem. You know what I mean? You can't say that you support it for that, but then you wouldn't support it for this country. Why can't anybody anywhere in the world just come here and get citizenship? So, the Yeah. Can't have an ethnocracy and a democracy. They don't work together. Yes, we can. It doesn't work, people. So either own that it is what it is or think about ways to fix the problem. But stop yelling at people as anti-Semites for pointing out that something is a fact. That's all they got. They don't have anything else. But it's no different than anybody who screams, you're a racist, you're a misogynist, you're this and that. And again, that's when the argument goes out the door because you don't have one that's that's valid anymore. And so in this case, I've often tried to say that one of the biggest one of the biggest root causes of anti-Semitism is the actions of the most Zionistic Jews in the country and around the world, because they truly believe that they are ethnically superior to everybody else. And when that happens, you're going to get a backlash. People don't like that. Shocking. People don't like bullies and that's what it is. They're bullies. So I, I need to, I need to handle this. I, I, I feel bad to some extent that I've even waited as long as I have to, to really handle this and really put myself out there for this because to some extent it is, it's a risk. It is. And I, I've been somewhat hesitant to really be out there with this because it definitely will affect my name. And I, I have to look at, for me, the bigger picture. And if, again, if this is the hill I have to die in, it's the hill I have to die in. I'm, it is way more important for me to, to teach people what we now know and be better than it is for me to be politically popular. And that's just the way it is. Like, this is very important. And I don't think people understand that there's human beings being born into captivity. Yeah, I mean, again, this is a modern day, this is a generation later, but it is a modern day South Africa situation. Yeah, um, it's bad. It is what it is. Um, it's really bad. It's very hard. And again, I know a lot of people would love to see Jen run against Debbie again. And uh, a lot of people also need to understand that while the district lines have changed in a fairly significant way, I must say. As far as the amount of Jewish population in our district, for like sure. I would definitely say that if Jen were to be doing this and plan to run again, if the district lines were current as to what they were in 2020, this would be a death knell. But- And I still, and I still feel like I have to take a stand on this. Like I just do. I can't look lines, at things like what happened to Katie and Rashida yeah. and not say anything. District lines are different though. Um, and they are different in the sense that it's um, we have it's less Jews basically, and so we're feeling safer. It's not even that it's less Jews. It's that me. it's less. It's there's a um, 
the Miami-Dade portion of the congressional district is no longer with us anymore. They're no longer with us anymore. No longer part of the district. No. And this is important. One of the communities within that particular area, uh, there's two of them. One of them is Surfside, but I, I don't really count them because the population is very small compared to the main population of the district in Miami, which, of course, is Aventura. Aventura is the original North Miami Beach. It's been around for a very long time. It's one of the biggest uh, Jewish settlements. Probably, I would say Aventura, for all intents and purposes, is the biggest Jewish settlement outside of Brooklyn, New York. And it is big. And also it's impossible for a grassroots campaign to even reach it. Correct. So it's concrete jungle, concrete jungle with constant like everything is gated or secure buildings. You can't you can't canvas in Aventura. So the only way you can market there is TV or mailers, which is generally not the grassroots bread and butter. So it was hard anyway, but that we definitely a bunch of that Jewish demographic was now eliminated from our district. But that's why I'm this is not the cause of that. Like, does that make it so that this might not be something that totally prevents me from being able to win this district? Maybe, but this is important. And I'm, I'm just done. I'm done being quiet about this. I have a, an inordinate amount of family members that live in Israel. I have a lot of family members that are very Zionist and that send a lot of money to Israel and to building things in Israel and into the settlements. I have cousins that have lived in a West Bank settlement. Um, my mother-in-law is very big into APAC. To even do that with a conscience, like I don't. Really they're not do taught. That. They're not taught. They're brainwashed. It's a propaganda. You know what? Thing. That's they're right. not taught this. Think what's it, going on? Think of it this way: it's the equivalent of of the uh, attempted. Uh, you want to call it a Katie, massacre? Katie, as of right now, is planning on being on one of my panels on the, our deconstructing Zionism. If, if I mean, again, when you're talking about the. Guys, make sure you're smashing the like button and sharing this and getting it out there, please. Yeah, really Katie's probably going to be on my second panel. What this is, is it's the equivalent in many ways of the genocide that is being attempted in Flint, Michigan. Again, the goal to poison the water supply in Flint, Michigan is very simple. They want to get people out of there so they can redevelop the area. They don't care about the people who live there because the people who live there are predominantly poor, white, and overwhelmingly black and brown people. They much more care about the value of the property. That's than the all people. that matters. And that's the same thing in the West Bank. Same thing. Prime real estate, baby. And they want the Jews to have all of it. But them. they do things out there. People don't even realize this. There's, there's actually a settlement in the West Bank. I cannot remember the name of it. I'm sure Rania would know off the top of her head. But um, <clears throat> where literally they built an Israeli settlement on top of, literally on top of, a Palestinian village. So their their sidewalks are grates that and they drop their trash and their sewage into the Palestinian village that's below them. They literally built it on top of a Palestinian village. I cannot remember the name of it. I swear this is a thing. So like- And again, this isn't a question of Israel existing or not. That is the argument that the Zionists are going to use to say, oh, you just don't believe that Jews have a right to exist. No, we believe that Jews and Palestinians have a right to exist. And unfortunately, one side doesn't believe that that is the case. And that is a big problem. And again, this is- Partially, again, this this is a race war. It is, but I'll tell you what they real the problem is is they want to have their cake and eat it too, and this is something that people ultimately have to understand. You cannot have an ethno state and have other people in it that are not of that ethno, and then also be a democracy. You cannot do that 
by definition, ethnocracy means you have to be the majority. And the reason that they get to stay a majority and they keep it that way is by subjugating and oppressing the minority group, which otherwise would be a majority group, at which point Israel wouldn't be able to be a Jewish state, which is why they won't allow Palestinians the right to return. They actually refer, there's a phrase that they use called mowing the lawn. And they have to mow the lawn every once in a while. And that's when they generally ramp up bombings and stuff like going after the, they went after a group of Palestinians resistance groups that were nonprofit organizations that were the people there that are basically like us, but there, and they bombed their buildings. And it's like- That's why I'm not convinced at all that the bombings that are being <clears throat> laid at uh, either in uh, Jerusalem or Tel Aviv is ever coming from the Palestinians. I believe that this is just a war of attrition where the Israelis conducted against the Palestinians. And then you have the shadow government groups that conduct the psyops where the goal is to make it seem like the Israelis are being attacked and they're just responding, which of course is not. True. Well, no. And the Palestinians do do fight back. The, the problem is it's just like you're talking about a situation that is just so disproportionate. It's not it's not, you know, apple. It's apples and oranges. We're not in the same we're not in the same universe. And no, they do fight back and they do do things. But here's the problem. And I have had more Jewish people tell me, but they build these tunnels because they want to come and kill the Jews. And here's the thing. <clears throat> they do build tunnels. They very well do build tunnels. I have two things about that. One, if I were being locked into somewhere and my only way out was digging, I might dig a tunnel too. And also, if my captors were keeping me incarcerated just by my mere birth of being born, let's say, in Gaza, yeah, I might want to dig tunnels and go hurt them. I might. I might. But this is something that people think. They think that when you give the oppressed people their freedom, that they're going to come and treat you the way you treated them. And that's not the case. That's not the case in this country with black people. And it is not the case in Israel with Palestinians. But that's what they think. They must want to kind of kill us. You know why you think that? Because you know you've been so shitty to them that they might want to come and hurt you. But I got to tell you, you think, I want to say it's like 40 something percent of the people in Gaza are under the age of 18. Do you think those kids are going to grow up and love the USA? So in 10 years, 20 years, when you have a whole new rash of, of complete like anti-USA terrorists that want to come after us, you got to wonder, hmm, maybe if we breed people in captivity, don't let them leave, don't give them clean water, don't give them power, only give them enough food so that they don't die, and we just keep them subjugated their whole lives, maybe that'll anger some folks. Maybe that'll make them want to fight back with whatever means they have. It's by any means necessary. And you know what? Good for them. Good for them. And shame on our Congresswoman for stoking the fire even worse. Well, she always does. You anti, you, that is not anywhere near anti-Semitism. What you are is an Islamophobe and, and sure. a bigot. So that that's, is. that's, the, it, that's the but, thing. But again, for somebody who has been in bed literally and figuratively with payday lenders, the, the, the scrounge of the earth, the people who literally take the most advantage of people struggling in communities yeah, trying to survive. It's bad. Debbie's, Debbie's bad. I don't love talking about her at all. I really don't. Like, I wish I did. I, but the <clears> glorious thing if about- If I had a good congressperson, I wouldn't even be here. Yeah, but you see, here's the I thing. And this is what you know that she's really not liked in many ways. Yeah. Is that whenever she does open her mouth, the onslaught that comes at her, literally at her- Good. Is relentless because people really don't like her. And she has been protected for a very long time. We'll see what happens going into the next election cycle. 
We have one more story we want to cover. What do we want to cover? We want to cover the fact that, oh, man. Oh, God. God, We have to talk about Joe? Got to talk about Joe. I don't want to talk about Joe. Do we still have a president? We do, apparently. (laughs) Sleepy Joe? Sleepy Joe. Sleepy Joe. Well, he's really sleepy because he don't want to fight for it. But as it turns out, no surprises here. We are really stuck in a very bad predicament where, unfortunately, our current president is backing off of on the ten debt. on that ten thousand. What was yeah. means tested ten thousand dollars? At least four million people will now no longer get their student debt canceled. What did they change the standard? So now, no, apparently, test? well, again, because you know it's always the big bad GOP, and apparently there is a lawsuit that is being thrown at the Biden administration regarding whether or not they have legal standing to cancel student debt. Uh, guess what? The answer is yes, they have legal standing to cancel a student debt. President has that authority, but unfortunately, much like using the parliamentarian as an excuse. Okay, guys, but the parliamentarian is not an excuse. She is power. So if you want real leadership for the Democratic Party going into 24, let's go with Manchin and the parliamentarian, guys. That's where the real power in the party is because she's more stronger than Joe. Biden administration scales back student debt relief for millions amid legal concerns. Education Department says that a subset of federal student loans owned by private lenders no longer qualify for relief. The Biden administration is scaling back its debt relief program for millions of Americans over concerns about legal challenges from the student loan industry. The student loan industry. Which is, that is investment banks, Wall Street banks. The student loan industry. That's code word for student loan industry. That is code for Wall Street banks. That's what that is. Student loan industry. As well as a new lawsuit from Republican-led states. So let's continue the divide. Let's continue the debate. It's a Republican's problem. In a reversal, the Education Department said on Thursday would no longer allow borrowers who have federal student loans that are owned by private entities to qualify for the relief program. Who the hell do you think? Who do you think private ownership is? That's Wall Street banks. That's exactly what we need him to do. Like that, the fact that he's saying we can't do it because of them. That's exactly why he's the one who can do it. It's because it's that. These are pub- <laughs> these are these are student loans for public universities owned by private uh, nonprofits and corporations. That it is so trans. They are so bad at this. They are so bad at this. The student loan industry. The administration the had previously industry. said these those borrowers would have a path to receive up to ten thousand or twenty thousand of loan forgiveness. Sorry. <laughs> That ain't happening anymore. Well, look, to be honest, it was never good enough anyway. No. Okay. But yeah, for that one person who maybe that would be a chunk of their debt, that is huge. And um, (laughs) the policy change comes as the Biden administration this week faces its first major legal challenges to the loan forgiveness program, which the GOP have railed against as an illegal use of executive power that is too costly for taxpayers. It's not. It's not a burden of the taxpayers and it's not illegal. The president has the executive authority to wipe out student debt. And any president with any balls would just do it and tell them to go F off. On, he would. On Thursday, a group, uh, you better believe, if there was one thing I can guarantee you, if Bernie was president right now, he would tell them to go, go screw yourself. He would. On Thursday, a group of six GOP attorneys, general, sued to block loan forgiveness. The states of Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, and South Carolina Asked a fe- the bastions Lenza, of great education. Lindsey Graham just wasn't having any of it. 
and fashion had to of let great people education. Know. Those places. I made sure that I paid my student debt. They make my sure to keep. They want to keep their people as uneducated as possible. Absolutely. My God. I mean, talk about talk about. I mean, Arkansas and South Carolina in particular. Talk about two of the lowest educated. And you know who else That's is down there? Oh, that would be us. Yeah. That would be us. And yet we're one of the richest states. And yet Florida is right down there with Arkansas and the and Mississippi or whatever, Missouri. West Virginia. And Those are terrible. Ask the federal judge to strike down the debt cancellation program, arguing that it's illegal and unconstitutional. Again, a lie. The student <laughs> loans that are guaranteed by the federal government, but held by private entities, again, held by Wall Street banks, account for a relatively small and shrinking subset of all outstanding federal student debt. Oh so God. now what you're saying is that you're just trying to find an excuse not to cancel student of debt because you don't actually want to do that. They com- Does he not understand how much this is going to kill the Democrats in the polls? I don't like, care. Did they not get that? I, I, they don't, I just don't think they care. They probably don't, but I'm just saying. they. Comp- well, when you Does he about- look like he knows anything to you? Oh, come on, man. They compromised just several million of the roughly 45 million Americans with federal student loans. But there are significant business interests that depend on the federal. Gee, gee, who would have guessed? But there are significant business Business interests that depend on federally guaranteed loan program. Uh, A wide range of private lenders, banks, guarantee agencies, loan servicers and investors. Yeah, imagine investing off of people's suffering. I I, got to tell you, that industry is widely seen both inside and outside the administration as presenting the greatest legal risk to the debt relief program. Again, there is no legal risk. So basically what he's saying is, is his real constituents, which are these banks, these in this student loan industry, those that's his constituents, is infinitely more important to him than the people who owe the money. That's all he's saying. He's saying that those interests matter more to me than the interests of the students that are being squashed by debt. Many of these companies face economic losses when they lose borrowers who convert their federally guaranteed loans into new loans that are made directly by the education department through a process known as consolidation. I consolidated. Yeah, those poor Wall Street banks that just can't catch a break. I consolidated. Administration officials said when they announced that the debt relief program in August that borrowers with federally guaranteed loans should consolidate their loans in order to receive loan forgiveness. Not a bad idea. The Education Department said Thursday that borrowers who already took those steps to receive loan forgiveness would still receive it. Okay, one little benefit of better than nothing, I guess. The agency <laughs> said it would still provide debt relief to borrowers who have applied to consolidate into direct loan program prior to September 29th. But the department said that path is no longer available to borrowers after the new guidance. Shameful. Our goal is to provide relief to as many eligible borrowers and quickly and easily as possible. And this will allow us to achieve that goal while we continue to explore additional legal available options to provide relief to borrowers with privately owned FFEL loans and Perkins loans, including whether FFEL borrowers could receive one-time debt relief without needing to consolidate. You know how they could do that, though? They could just pay the loan. They could. See, that's the thing. Maybe let's say you're right, that you legally couldn't cancel them. Let's say that that's okay. So then why can't Joe just pay them? Why can't he just pay them off? Look, man, come, come, you know, not, not that I want to help. Because that we could do, too. That's the that's let's get Steve Grumbine on here and how he could talk about if you want to call it that if you want then just have the federal government move the little the little dollar sign the little decimal point over on the computer and let them pay off the loans. Joe Biden's got a lot going on, man. Oh my God, Corn Pop was a bad dude. Corn Pop. Yeah. All right. We need Corn Pop right now. Wrap this story up. 
The lawsuit filed in federal court in Missouri is based in part on theory that the states are harmed directly by the Biden administration taking steps to forgive federal student loans held by private entities. Again, bullshit. I don't see how that affects those states. For example, in the lawsuit, Missouri, Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt argues that the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, a quasi-state entity. Oh, quasi which owns and ser- services that sounds- federally guaranteed student loans faces economic harm from the debt relief program. Again, not true. Nebraska Attorney General Doug Peterson argues in the lawsuit that some of his state's pension fund is invested in security. Are you kidding me? They're just making the, stuff up. The, They're making shit up. This is crazy. The pension fund is involved in this? How is that not a, 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 a uh, the conflict of interest? The lawsuit says the Biden relief program could cut in half the size of that market and hurt the state's investments. And in they are. Let me explain something. We don't do things based on complete hypotheticals. No, like this is this would not be allowed as an argument in court. It would be like too speculative. You know what I mean? Like this is just sort of like okay, this maybe this could happen. Okay, well maybe a lot of things can happen. These are not valid arguments. Some of the other states, however, argue that the entire student debt relief program, not just the federal guaranteed part, will cause them economic injury. They argue they'll face lost tax revenue as a result of Biden's student debt relief program for all types of federal student loans. The Education Department spokesperson said the policy change would affect only a small percentage of borrowers. The most recent federal data as of June 30 shows there were 4.1 million federal borrowers with 108.8 billion of loans held by private lenders. You scumbags. I just want to point out that they go with, it's the education department spokesperson. They don't name somebody. There's no name. So none of this information is actually attributable to a human being. No. And I think that's very telling. Administration officials argued that the policy change would directly affect far fewer than millions of borrowers because a large share of the borrowers were never set to receive the relief in the first place. And the fact that we have this debt is a joke. Some 1.6 million borrowers with privately held federal student loans also have a direct loan, according to an administration official. Those borrowers will still be able to obtain debt relief of their direct loan, the official said, though it is possible they will receive less overall relief. Yeah, not not a surprise. Okay, so another 1.5 million borrowers have a certain type of privately held federal loan, an FFEL consolidation loan, would have faced a complex process for making their loans eligible for relief, according to an administration official. Again, an administration official. Can't put a name to it. Combined with some additional drop-off for borrowers who exceed the income limits of the program, administration officials argue that only 770,000 borrowers would be directly affected by the policy change. Like, they're throwing that number out there like that isn't a significant number. 770,000. Earlier this month, the Biden administration released data is, uh, estimating that 42.4 million borrowers across the country would be eligible for its debt relief program. My, how that has changed. It's not clear why the Biden administration decided on Thursday to pull the plug. No, it actually is very clear. His the party is fun- like it. The party is funded. The Democratic Party is owned by Wall Street and Silicon Valley. That's why. Period. <laughs> That's the reason. That's why. His friends were going to lose some money. That's what it is. Joe, I mean, if you really want the money for the midterms, I mean, come on, baby. You got to, you know, you got to keep He's work, just man. concerned about his friends. Oh, man, can't even open my eyes. <sighs> Industry officials and a wide range of policy experts had long warned, even before the administration's August announcement, about the legal complexities associated with the federal government for giving federally guaranteed student loans. Again, this is a lie. It's a lie. 
It is executive authority. They're allowed to put this out. And yet Katie gets fired for telling the truth. This is Julian Assange gets prosecuted for telling the truth. Up this is, is down, lot. left is right. <laughs> Top education department officials, again, no names. No and names. Industry groups had for weeks been negotiating a compromise deal Top. in which the companies were compensated. Top education department were compensated for their losses as if they haven't made enough profit already and would avoid suing the administration over the issue. Those discussions had not yet produced a deal, but the administration signaled on Thursday they would continue negotiating. Mm, the Education sure. Department said on its website Thursday is assessing whether they are, are alternative pathways to provide relief to borrowers with federal student loans not held by the Education Department, including FFEL program there loans are. and Perkins loans. Pay and, them! And discussing with the private lenders. Um, That's how you do it. <laughs> Pay them. The beautiful thing about uh, this particular story is really simple. Joe doesn't actually want to cancel student loans. No. Joe doesn't give a crap about the idea student loans. that one one lawsuit has come down the pike to try to stop this from happening. And Joe's response is, oh. "Okay, we'll not we won't cancel them." No balls. Which is the truth is he just it doesn't serve him to do it. So this is the kind of thing it's Mick resistance. We're going to pretend like we give a crap, and then we're going to say that oh, but the mean Republicans won't let us. It's the same as blaming Joe Manchin or the parliamentarian. They just blame somebody because they don't really want to do those things anyway. So uh oh, do I have to like uh, what grossness suits me? Look, here are the facts, man. I mean, uh, I don't really have any authority to do anything. We know that. You don't have the brains to do anything, Joe. It's oh, not it's, good. It's, it's, come on, man. It's almost bedtime. Yeah. Gotta get fed. Gotta, gotta get up in the morning. It's just not good. Kids shouldn't have taken out the loans, man. When I went to college back at the University of Delaware, you know how much I paid per semester? Yeah, Joe. $300 a semester. Right. You know how expensive that is? No. You know what the minimum wage that you could live on it back then, Joe? People could live on the minimum wage. wage. Yes, because it was livable. It's, That's the problem, Joe. It's just these greedy kids, man. No. They want a free lunch. Lunch costs a few bucks. There's something called pay. student lunch debt. It's time to pay the piper. They gotta pay the there piper, is something man. called student lunch debt. Like That's, that's right. in If you can't afford to pay your lunch, you got to go into debt and pay it later. Oh you know that I, no other country has that. No other country has that. Student Look, launch that? Not, not, not that I don't care about these kids. It's embarrassing. If they get themselves into trouble, you, I can't help them, man. That's on them. You got to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Mm -hmm. I did that. Yeah, that's what you did. That's right. That's what I did. I got hairy legs, man. Oh, it's so gross. <laughs> it's so just stop. I'm glad my hair is pulled back because I don't. That's like I needed you in my hair. So gross. But we're gonna, we're totally gonna cancel the debt, man. It's just not gonna come until after the midterms. That's what they tell me. So if we just vote blue, so if we just, you just gotta get out there and vote for the Democrats, man. <laughs> That's gonna solve the problem. <laughs> just get out there, make sure that you vote for us. You know, my friend Bernie, he just keeps doing what I said. Oh God. Did I ever tell you that corn pop was a bad dude? I don't want to talk about corn pop. No, he's a really bad dude. <laughs> he's the. All right, Jen. Gonna level with the American people, here, right? The real reason we can't get anything done is corn pop. That's the real reason. That's I thought. The real reason. I really thought we should go with Mansion Parliamentarian. What do you think about that? What do you? I, I think that's a great idea. 
I think that's a wonderful idea. I think, Joe, are you are you going to endorse Mansion Parliamentarian for 24? Sure, if that gets me away from having to run again. Yeah, okay. So there you have it, guys. Joe endorses Mansion and Parliamentarian for 24. The only place I'm running is to the lunch hall to get my Joe pudding. <laughs> and then I'm running to take a nap. See, Jello pudding, that's like uh, Bill Cosby. Seems like you're kind of guy. Remind me again how I became president of the United States. We, yeah, there was COVID. Oh, right. Yeah, that thing. It was COVID. That's why you became president. And if you didn't vote for me, then you ain't American. Oh, good God. So if somehow I'm still here. And, uh, yeah, I. it's not. It's not. You see, you're not this getting is, any student loan. This is your next president, Joe, right here. Oh, that guy's. Yeah. He's good. He's good. Yeah. He's really good. I don't know. No, you're not supposed to like him, Joe. Oh, right. right. No, you're yeah, not supposed yeah. to no, like him. No, he's a. Ron DeSantis is a bad dude. He's like corn pop. He is like corn pop. Yeah, but this is, the problem is, is that they don't, the Democrats don't have a good challenge for him down oh, here. Man, we don't have anything, man. I can't even give anything away. I'm trying. But, you know, I'm not really the president. I'm just there. And you're here. Mm. All right. Let me well, give you one smell. Just one So gross. Okay. Right. It didn't work. All right. <laughs> I thought I could get away with it. It didn't work. But uh, I'll see you guys. Is corn pop behind all of the corporate owner donor bribes? I think probably. Probably. It's all corn pop. Yeah. <laughs> it's really unfortunate, but yeah, that is the president we have. And he's not doing anything. No. He's, not. he's just not. He's uh, not well, he's not willing to challenge his wealthy friend. Joe messed up. You have vanity issues. Joe messed up my hair. You have vanity issues. Look at me. I'm like post canvassing. I have my hair in like a half pony bun thing because you're like, let's do a live. I'm like, okay. And of course, he goes in to, to, to fix his quaff. <laughs> uh, what do we have coming up? I don't know. What do we have coming up on Monday? What's our show on Monday? What do you got? Paul, it took you forever to get here, brother. It's like we've had some. Uh, some good people show up today. We really appreciate you all smashing that like button, subscribing, making sure that you get this out to a lot of people. Because again, it's really important, man. You know. Yeah, and so guys, we don't normally do Saturdays, but Paul, if you're if you're late, uh, we did talk about that two weeks from today. I'm going to be hosting. <clears throat> we're hosting a series of panels called Deconstructing Zionism. There will be four panels over three hours, and we have some amazing guests planned. And there's going to be some really good subjects. We're going to talk about everything from like the actual history of Zionism, the conflation between Judaism and Zionism. We're going to have a media panel that talks about how the media covers Israel and Palestine. We're going to have a political panel that talks about what AIPAC and the Democratic Majority for Israel are doing to our political system um, and how Zionism impacts our domestic politics. And then there will be a fourth panel that is going to talk about the intersection of the black liberation movement and Palestinian oppression and, and how those things kind of work hand in hand. Um, so there's some really great people that we already have secured for some of these. And uh, it's going to be really great. I, I, I'm looking forward to it. As you guys know, we appreciate your support. It means a lot. And of course, we are out there supporting local non-corporate candidates, which is a big, big thing. Lord knows we need that down here. And if you work so hard, please go to patreon.com forward slash generational change for as little as $5 a month. You can support our wonderful show. This is who we are canvassing for, Nick Sortle for mayor, because he doesn't take that 
sweet, sweet developer. Because he's just a nice guy who wants to represent his community and really cares. That's why. And the current mayor is someone who seems to just care about herself and some developers. Hmm. Now, if you are inclined to become a $10 a month Patreon, we do have this wonderful mansion parliamentarian bumper sticker that we will send your way. Can you? Oh, here. Yeah. There and you also get the Lulu sticker, and I keep forgetting to bring some in here, but the Lulu stickers are adorable, guys. So, um, yeah, we're, we're really hoping that somebody, anybody support us, get the stickers. And it's really just, it's just to support what we're doing, which is community service and nonpartisan, non-corporate candidates. And if you do not want to put your credit card on the file and constantly be billed once a month, we understand that. So please go to Cash App, dollar sign, Gen Change, and chip in whenever you can. Because any contribution really does help. And again, we do have our show coming up on Monday, regular time, 8 p.m. Although, no, actually, I think we're going at 7.30 p.m. on Monday. We are going to have Saru Geronimin, I think is how you say it. She is the president of One Fair Wage, which is a national living wage, which is what I support. Because we should definitely be more like countries that give a damn about their workforce and less about having people on the government dole. If you care about less welfare, then you should be caring about a living wage. Bottom line. I think you would agree with that. Yes. And then on Wednesday, we already have scheduled a wonderful candidate running for Congress, Odessa Kelly, running in Tennessee's 7th Congressional District, which represents the greater Nashville area. A lovely place, I must add. So we do have some good guests coming up, maybe some surprise guests. Lord knows we're going to have to get our good friends Jordan Sheraton and Steve Grumbine on the show again really soon, because it seems all this wonderful information that keeps getting out there about the things that the Biden administration can and can't do is a bunch of, is a crock of you know what. So that is what it is. We appreciate you guys checking us out this evening. I know you're going to enjoy this content. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Mia Suarez, you look just unbelievably gorgeous. Love. You know, we're live. I know. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, Jen is uh, probably uh, hungry. Bonning over my friend's daughter's homecoming picture. Oh, that's lovely. I know. So. That said, we appreciate you guys. Hope you like the new generational change box in the corner. Why? You you went with the box? You like the box? It's always been a possibility. It's been a good one. I've got funky hair. You are so like self-interested. Not really. Yeah, you are. Look at you. I just don't want to look. about your hair? I feel like, look at me. I look like I've been canvassing in a schwitz. Katie Halper is awesome. Joe Biden, not so awesome. Why? What are we saying about, I'm talking Katie right now. Okay, great. Well, send Katie my best. (laughs) And we appreciate you guys. Make sure to like, subscribe, comment. Do all that wonderful stuff that really helps us get out there. We hope you enjoyed the live stream. Paul, great to see you. Karen, Brenda, Jason, Emerald, Michelle, Mutineer. Mutineer. Interesting comment. We really appreciate you guys. For sure. Uh, I can't say that I've seen that, Paul, but I guess now I'm going to have to check it out. So, so, Are you talking about Chris Pine? He's talking about Chris Pine. I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah. Thank you very much. So with that said, thank you guys. I have a brother in law that really looks like Chris Pine. Lucky him. Have a great night. We'll see you Monday. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.